I started wrestling when I was about four years old, Calvin's age, and every year, no matter what, my first wrestling practice all the way through high school would begin the same way, with the fundamentals. And so we would always start with the correct wrestling stance, which if you don't know wrestling, there's a certain way that you have to stand, right? You have to kind of squat down to make sure you're low and you're not bending over too much so you can protect your legs. And then we move over how to walk and how to shift around in kind of a funky way in this stance. Then the rest of the practice, we'd usually spend doing the most basic wrestling takedown, a double leg. Now these would be moves, especially when I was a senior in high school, that I had done thousands of times and I could do them in my sleep. I haven't wrestled in a decade, but if any of you want to volunteer afterwards, I'll, I'll try it out and I'm pretty sure I can still pull off a double leg. But every year, no matter what, we'd still hit those same fundamentals. Why? Because they're too important to skip over and just assume that you know them. Much like how John Wooden, the championship basketball coach, should always start with his teams on how they should tie their shoes before they ever started playing basketball. Now, as Christians, we're entering into Christmas time. These next few weeks, and as we have been, we're going to be looking at the Christmas story in the Gospel of Luke. It's a fundamental story. It's a foundational story. And whether this has been the hundredth time that you've heard the story or the very first, we're going to be here to remind ourselves of the fundamentals of our faith. Because you can't be a Christian if you don't rightly understand what this story means. This morning, our passage is commonly kind of referred to as the Annunciation. It is Gabriel's announcement to the Virgin Mary that she is going to give birth to the Savior and King. And so we're going to study this famous passage to remind ourselves of the significance of this event and the significance of Jesus' birth. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 1. We'll start in verse 26, and we'll go all the way to verse 45. So we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the revealing of our king, our response to the king, and then finally the reward of the king. Um, so if you are able, I would invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word in Luke 1, 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the same and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and she'll call his name Jesus. And he will be great. It will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child will be born and will be called Holy the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. 
And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades. God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I, I ask that you would be here this morning. Lord, that you would um, warm our cold hearts. As you warm our cold bodies, would you help us to, to listen and to hear the fundamental truths of our faith? Would you help us to not think that we've mastered you or that we have you all figured out? And would you give us the faith and wonder of a child and faith like Mary? We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, so first, we're going to be looking at the revealing of the king. And so point number one, if you're taking notes, is that Jesus is the promised Davidic king. So Jesus is the promised Davidic king, really the entire point of this whole birth narrative, um, starting in the beginning of, of Luke 1 all the way to the end of chapter 2, is that Jesus is in the Davidic line. He is the king that was promised. But before I can unpack this statement fully, we need to look at the text and kind of the story. So where does it begin? Verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. So six months after our story from last week, when Gabriel appears to Zechariah and Elizabeth, he shows up again. And that same angel is sent by God to a small town in Galilee called Nazareth. The small, tiny village probably only had a couple of maybe 100 people living there. It's never mentioned outside of the Bible during this time period. None of the Roman texts or historians thought it had any kind of significance because it is really unimportant. Even one of Jesus' own disciples later in John 1.46, when he is told, hey, there's a, a rabbi from Nazareth, said, well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? What do, what do you mean? It's nowhere special. And here, to this nowhere special place, to a nobody special woman, Gabriel appears. In verse 26, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. We know very little about her. Um, even her name, Mary, it's one of the most common names, not just today, but it was really common in her day. There are a number of Marys in the Bible. That's why they usually have to distinguish which Mary we're talking about. We know that she's engaged, they're probably, but they're probably months, possibly years ahead of the wedding and the consummation of the wedding. And compared to Zechariah, who we looked at last week, who was righteous, and he's in the temple, he's performing his important duties before the Lord and before the altar, Mary's just a regular young woman in a small town. She's probably just going through her ordinary routine. Maybe she's doing chores or she's hard at work when Gabriel appears before her. The significant fact we see about her too is that she is of the house of David, both through her engagement to Joseph and in her own right, as we will see in other places and other gospels. In verse 28, the angel comes and he says to her, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. So first she's called favored, but there's something also subtle in this greeting. Of the Lord is with you. It's not just that God is with her right now. 
It is also that God will be with her in the future. That God will be with her and be present as she embarks on this new journey. He's never going to leave her, nor will he forsake her. In one sense, this is literally going to be fulfilled by her son, Jesus, who is God and who will be with her for quite a while. But rightly, she's kind of confused by this greeting in 29. Well, she's troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. That would also be how I would respond if an angel appeared to me in general. And the angel says to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. This favor that she has found is the unmerited, undeserved, and unbelievable grace of God. It is a grace that she didn't gain or earn through holiness. The angel isn't appearing to her and saying, hey, I'm here. You found favor because of your, you've been really faithful at your attendance at the temple. It's certainly not because she's somebody important and from a noble line in a big, important city. And yet she has found the favor of God. And this blessing, it's so incredible because the promised Davidic king is going to be her son. She will be the one who gets to give birth to the Messiah. I had a professor who had mentioned that probably every single Jewish woman hoped that they would get to be the one to give birth to the Messiah. That at every conception since Eve, maybe they had wondered, is this one the seed that will destroy the serpent and finally crush his head? And finally, the hopes of all of those women is fulfilled and met in Mary, favored one. Verse 31, it continues, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you should call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now Mary might not have understood the greeting, but she understands what this means. She knows that the king from the house of David will be her son. And if we look back at Israel's history, remember they've always kind of wanted a king. Israel asked for a king one day in 1 Samuel, and the demand for a king itself was not actually wrong. Okay, so the law itself was filled with, the Mosaic law was filled with laws and statements about, hey, when you have a king, here's what he needs to do. Here's what he can't do. Here's what he should do. Here's the kind of righteous king that you should have. But the problem in 1 Samuel 8 was that they wanted a king like the other nations. They didn't want God as their king. They wanted a man as their king. Specifically, a man like the, the other nations around them had. They wanted a human king, so they got Saul. If they were patient, I think maybe they could have had David instead as their first king. Because David is the one who is the greatest king in Israel's history. Okay, I enjoy studying the American presidents. It's all, one of the things that's fun about it is it's interesting to see people rank presidents, right? We've had a lot of them, so you, know, you can move them around a lot of different ways. And everyone has a different list. And it's fun because some of your favorite presidents is probably somebody else's worst. It's at the bottom of their list. Well, for Israel, David is number one on everyone's list. There's no debate. There's no arguing about it. Everybody loved David. Well, maybe somebody didn't, but almost everybody did. And they all wished that they could have a king like him again. Every time they had a new king and somebody else is coming on the throne, they thought, well, maybe this time this guy will be like David was. And we can have peace again. And God made a covenant. He made a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. I won't read the whole thing, but that whole chapter goes over the Davidic covenant. 
And the primary promise that God makes to David is he says in verse 30, or is the one mentioned in 33 in Second in Samuel. He says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God promises, David, you will always have a descendant on the throne. That they will keep God's people in Israel safe. And he's going to defeat your enemies. No one will ever assassinate him. No one's ever going to vote him out. No coup is ever going to succeed. His kingdom will never end. And so Jesus finally comes. Israel hasn't had a king in quite some time. Hundreds of years. But now Jesus comes to fulfill this covenant promise. And you can't understand Jesus' identity as king apart from David. You really can't understand Jesus' role as savior or as teacher or as anything apart from his role and his kingship. From the very beginning, Jesus was born as a king who was coming to enact his kingdom. If you remember two weeks ago when I went through the, tried to do the whole book of Luke, told us the message of Luke is that Jesus is the promised king and he came to preach and enact his kingdom which is for all people through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And that kingdom that he comes to enact is a kingdom that will never end, which is why the angel tells her, of his kingdom there will be no end. This is the promise of Jesus. Every time he preaches the good news of the kingdom, every time he talks about the kingdom of God, he is talking about the kingdom that was promised to David. And Gabriel comes to announce that now is the time. The promised king has finally arrived and all those promises like the one we read in Isaiah 9 this morning are about to come true. So the promised Davidic king is going to be born. How should we respond? Point number two, if you're taking notes, is we should respond to the king with faith. We should respond to the king with faith. The reality of the arrival of Jesus, it demands a response. And we can either respond with faith or we can respond with doubt. Right? There are several miracles in these few verses that require faith. The first is the miraculous nature of the virgin birth. Okay, Jesus is born to a young woman who is a virgin. Now, some try to explain away this passage. They begin by believing that's impossible, which it is. Okay, this doesn't just happen. So they think, well, maybe these ancient people were just fooled, as if they didn't have any idea how children were conceived. They hadn't figured it out yet. But now we have. We're smarter than them. Or they may try to say, well, this is just a story that was in, invented way later on. Someone else came up with it, but people didn't believe this. No, from the very beginning, there, there's no record of the church ever believing something different. You can believe a lot of different things and be a Christian. Okay, in this room, in this church, there's plenty of things we all disagree about. And yet we still are believers and worship the same God. And we can worship together and smile and hug each other and be happy to see each other. Okay, this is one of the things that you don't get to decide if you want to believe it or not and still be a Christian. The virgin birth is a non-negotiable. It is an essential, fundamental part of our faith. And it does take faith to believe it. This is crazy. It's crazy. But we believe it. And we must believe it. Why? And what's funny, okay, the virgin birth, that's not even the most unbelievable miracle in this passage. There's another one. The greatest is the miracle of the incarnation. Okay, it's a big word. What does that mean? It's a fancy theological word to describe the fact that God has come down and decided to live as a man among us. The idea that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, that's another miraculous thing that we believe, would enter into human flesh. 
They would condescend to us and be born as a baby who squeaked and made a lot of noise when it was time to be quiet. He would be willing to accept our human limitations, like just being bound in time or having to walk around. Okay, believing in the virgin birth and the incarnation, it's necessary not just because we believe that God says they're true, but because of their significance. Why are these things significant? Well, first it's necessary, especially the virgin birth, because the Savior who would save us has to be born without sin. Jesus cannot be the perfect sacrifice for our sins if he himself is a sinner like the rest of us. Okay, and being a sinner is not just something that we do as soon as we're able to decide. You discover this when you have young children. They figure out how to do things that are wrong very quickly. They don't really need you to teach them that. They will find it on their own. Okay, sin is something that we are also born with. So Jesus has to be miraculously conceived so that he can be born without a sinful nature that comes from Adam, without the taint of sin. And even more than the necessity of being born free from sin, Jesus has to be miraculously conceived from a virgin because he is God. That is the whole point of this narrative, is that the Davidic king is not just a man who's going to be really good and have good ideas. It is that he is God himself. It's not just a man. It's not just a superhero. It's not Superman. The Davidic king, Jesus, is God. Jesus wasn't just a human baby who got taken over by God. He wasn't just a human who was then later adopted by God because he was so awesome. Jesus is and was God from before and at the moment of his miraculous conception. The virgin birth is a necessity because the divinity of Jesus is a necessity. But he also is a human. The wonder of the incarnation is that Jesus is both truly God and truly man. It is the greatest miracle. And it requires faith. How does Mary respond to this? Okay, how does this young woman respond to two of the craziest miracles that have ever happened before, I think, at least in human history at this point? The greatest mystery, the mystery that God has been foreshadowing since Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve fell in the garden. She responds with faith. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Now, just like Zechariah, you may notice she asks Gabriel a question. There's going to be a lot of parallels we'll see throughout these whole chapters between John and Jesus and Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary. But her question is different. Zechariah asked, how shall I know this? Zechariah wondered if God really was telling the truth. He wanted a sign. He wanted proof that this is real. But Mary asks, how will this be? She wonders how God's going to do what he says. She has faith. She just wants some more information. His is a question of doubt, but hers is a question that still has faith. Make no mistake, it's not sinful to ask God's questions. A ton of the Psalms, much of the writing of the prophets, they are filled with questions. God, why? God, help me. I don't understand this. Asking questions doesn't mean that you're doubting. And even you can ask and have some doubt, but there, Mary asks, but she asks in faith. She believes even though she doesn't get it all. She believes even though she doesn't understand. Zechariah just hears God's going to do again what he has done for tons of barren women all throughout the stories that he knows well as a priest. Mary hears that God is going to do something he has never done before. And that really important priest doubts and doesn't believe. And this ordinary woman believes. She believes even though she doesn't understand. And Gabriel responds in 35, and he doesn't rebuke her, which should tell us too, this isn't a question of doubt. This is, shows her faith. And the angel answers her, 
and tells her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The power of the Holy Spirit is what is going to make Mary pregnant. It is not a story like the old gods of Greece and Rome. This is not describing a sexual encounter, it is a spiritual encounter, a miraculous moment. That same spirit that hovered over the waters in Genesis 1 is going to hover over Mary. The God who brought life by breathing into dust and making man will do it once again. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. I love that phrase, overshadow you. It should sound a little familiar. If it doesn't, let me remind you where you've heard it before. It was used to describe the way, or it's used to describe what the cloud of glory would do throughout Israel's history. It's used to describe the cloud that overshadows the tent of meeting. When God's presence is there, not even Moses can go inside because the cloud is there. The cloud appears again in Matthew 17 and in Mark 9 at Christ's baptism. As the cloud overshadows all of the people and out of that cloud a voice speaks and says, Behold, this is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. The cloud appears again in Luke 9 at the transfiguration. It overshadows the whole mountain. As Jesus goes up and Elijah and Moses appear and Jesus is revealed in all of His glorious power and might. That same power and cloud will come and overshadow Mary. And supernaturally through the power of the Holy Spirit, she will conceive. And Gabriel continues in verse 36, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. This is the sixth month with her who was called bearing. Now, Mary didn't ask for a sign, but she gets one. Mary didn't ask for proof. Zechariah did. Zechariah instead, him and Elizabeth get to be the proof for Mary. And I think this is part of the reason why Elizabeth stays hidden for the five months before. I think it's so that Mary wouldn't know, so that now it can be revealed and she can have her sign. At this moment, her faith would be rewarded. But look again at the mercy of God. He doesn't rebuke Mary. He sees her faith and he rewards it. In verse 37, for nothing is impossible with God. He says, do you think I can't bring life where there wasn't life before? I already did it. Go see Mary. You'll see it again. Nothing is impossible. God can bring life where there is no life. God can do all things. And when we see the impossible, we doubt, but not Mary. Verse 38, Mary said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departs from her. It's also something interesting, I think, about for Mary, the angel leaves her. For Zechariah, he has to leave the angel. I think there's something there. I don't know what that means. I think it's because of her faith. But Mary, we see her, she speaks so few times in her Bibles. But the few words that she says, and we'll read more of them next week, are filled with righteous faith. And her identification, her saying, I am a servant of the Lord, is an act of faith because faith ultimately is trust. That we, we trust and we submit to God as she trusts and submits to God because she trusts Him. She says, let it be to me according to your word. No arguments, no negotiation, no trying to change the terms of the deal. She says, okay, whatever you want, God, I'll do it. And I think we need to understand how significant her response is. Mary is signing up to be an unmarried pregnant woman. And she has to explain, no, 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 I'm, I'm still a virgin. 
An angel appeared to me, and the king, the Messiah that we've longed for, he's my son. That would be, and it's going to be, hard. Okay, some of you are, or you have been single moms. That's hard to be a single mom today, isn't it? It's hard. It's always been hard throughout history, but especially here, to be young and unmarried and pregnant. This faith for Mary, it's going to be costly. She will be an outcast. Even Jesus, later in His ministry, there are moments where people mock Him because they remember and they know the story of His mom and they don't believe it. This is going to lead to a lot of hard conversations. It's going to lead to thousands of stares and mocking and whispers, even at the temple and the synagogue. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She responds with faith. Now, I, I wrote this, most of the sermon yesterday, so I didn't know he would sing this song today. Um, but there's a Christmas song you know because we just heard it called Mary, Did You Know? Now, each year I get a little frustrated because I hear Christians argue with each other about how much Mary knew. Maybe that was some of you. You felt, oh, you know, why are we singing this song and blah, 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 blah. Well, there's a lot behind that. I don't think we always handle poetry or rhetorical questions well. Um, but next week we're going to see Mary did know a lot. But she didn't know everything. Okay, she knew that this is the Davidic king. She knew God is going to keep his promises and I trust him. But she didn't know for sure how all of this would play out. She didn't have any guarantees in this moment for how Joseph is going to respond. For how Elizabeth is going to respond. How her parents are going to respond. For what this is going to be. She doesn't know it all. And yet she has faith. May it be so according to your word. Whatever the future looks like, Mary trusts God. The question is, how will we respond? Are we going to respond like Zechariah or Mary? I'm far more like Zechariah. Okay, I respond to God with questions and with doubts. I want to know all the answers. I want to know how everything is going to affect me. I need to know how it's all going to play out. If you give me some spreadsheets, God, and some timelines, and show me how this will all work, that's good. And th then I'm going to trust you, but I kind of ne I need to see some more. But Mary doesn't. She just believes. She has faith even though she doesn't understand everything. Now, for us, the, the birth of Christ has been announced to us. Do, do we believe it? You don't have to understand all the theological intricacies. You don't have to understand all of the historical proof or understanding. Ultimately, we have to have faith and trust. Do you have faith? Do you believe this? Now, one way as Christians I think we can respond with faith, too, is by not being bored by the story. Saying, oh, Christmas, I've heard this one again rather do something different. We can respond by faith, by pondering and wondering on the miraculous nature of Jesus, on the fact that He would come to us. Instead of wanting to have our ears tickled by new things, we could just have faith and delight in the wonders of what God has done for us. Isn't that miraculous enough for you? You need Him to do something else other than come and be born and die to bring you salvation? So the Davidic king has been revealed we're supposed to respond by faith. And what's the reward? Well, those, the reward in point number three is that those with faith in the king will be blessed. Those who respond with faith will be blessed. And what we see next in the story from the rest of it is how Mary is blessed because of her faith. In 39, in those days, Mary arose and she went with haste to the hill country to a town of Judah and entered into the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Mary quickly goes to see her relative. We don't know how fast. Probably about as quick as she could manage the trip. 
I imagine. Part of that could have just been, you know, the excitement to tell somebody that you love that you're pregnant. But I'm sure there's other factors at play too, more than just excitement. Okay, Gabriel told Mary that Elizabeth was pregnant, and this was meant to be a sign for Mary. We talked about the sign that she really is going to be miraculously present with the Messiah. But I bet that Mary was probably nervous. I would be nervous if I was Mary. She's a young, unmarried woman, even though she engaged, and now she's got to tell people that she's pregnant. For many women growing up, this would be your worst nightmare. As Rob reminded us last week, Elizabeth is a righteous woman. Her husband's a righteous man. They're important. They have big social standing in the community. We have no idea what Mary was thinking, but I think it'd be normal and natural for her to be nervous, to be scared, to wonder if she's really going to believe her or not. I would have spent the whole journey probably rehearsing what to say, okay, how I'm going to break the news, how I'm going to try to explain it, all of the details that I remember about Gabriel and what he said and how this is going to be, the passages of the, the Old Testament I remember and how this is really fulfilling and it's going to be good, how I'm going to explain this. But before Mary can get into any of that, she only says hello in 41. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaps in her womb, and Elizabeth's filled with the Holy Spirit. I think this is another example of God's grace to Mary in the moment. John the Baptist, his first prophetic act begins in the womb. It's not just a random kick because mom was excited. Already, John knows the Messiah is here. Get ready, mom. And Elizabeth, she herself is filled with the Holy Spirit, and she is more than just having a prophet in her womb, but the Holy Spirit fills her body, and she can't help but prophesy. Verse 42, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me? that the mother of my Lord should come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Elizabeth prophesies a blessing over Mary. And it's a two-parted blessing. Part of it is the fact that she gets to bear the king, the Messiah, that they've hoped for. The Messiah and the Savior that they've longed for has come at last. And Elizabeth acknowledges and knows that her Lord has come, but she also kind of gives Mary a title here. And we can almost skip over it if we're not too careful. He says, she says, blessed are you among women. Mary might have a common name, but she has an uncommon gift. And Elizabeth prophesies she is the most blessed of women. Why again, 45? And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. She's blessed because of her faith. She's blessed because she believed what God said, not just because of who she gets to bear, but because of her faithfulness. And it's her faith that gives her this blessing. And Mary, in this passage, she's referred to as the most blessed woman, a woman above all women. So what do we do with that? Okay, some of you, maybe you come from Catholic backgrounds. You might get a little nervous. Okay, there are some faith traditions, like the Catholic Church, that so will take this passage and say, yes, she is. Mary is the most blessed among over all women. And so they might over-elevate Mary and say, well, you know, maybe we should pray to Mary. She could be a mediator between us and her son, Jesus, because she's been given this special and unique place among humanity. Now, I don't have the time to get into all the intricacies of Mariology, and I don't think I really need to. I don't think that's a significant problem in our church. Um, Although, if you think that, we can come and we can have a talk. I think for us, in our context, our problem maybe be, can be that we tend to overreact against this over-elevation of Mary. At least for me, this has been my experience. Okay, I grew up Southern Baptist Church, white evangelicalism, and I grew up in a predominantly Catholic area where most people were Catholic. So as a reaction to that, what we tended to do in our church was downplay Mary. 
if we talked about her at all. But, I mean, she's, she's fine. I mean, she's a Christian, but, you know, whatever. She had faith. Lots of people have faith. Who, who cares? We kind of ignore her and push her to the side. Now, I'm not saying let's go build shrines or candles or put icons over on our wall, but I do think that maybe we should, we should probably talk about Mary as if she's one of the heroes of the faith. Because she is. She has incredible faith, especially for a young woman. She believes. And she's presented for us here as an example to emulate. And the Holy Spirit tells us she is blessed among all women. So maybe we should, I don't know, we should respect her a little more than we tend to. We should try to walk in her footsteps. We should let her faith encourage our faith. Why too? Because those who have faith like Mary had faith will be rewarded like she was. So, I mean, do you want to have a blessed Christmas this year? I mean, all of us probably would, right? Even those who, who aren't Christians can get caught up sometimes in the wonder and the enchantment of this season. We can desire to experience the unique blessing that, that comes. Listen to me, that, that blessing isn't going to come through any magical belief in St. Nicholas, though he was a nice guy. It's not just going to come by having gratitude and thankfulness, though that's a good idea. It won't come from just getting a really good present this year, just like you hoped. It won't even come by getting to spend great time with your grandkids or with your family or with people you love. The true blessing and the true reward that you can experience comes through faith and faith in Jesus. And it's a better blessing and a better gift than you will find under any tree anywhere on our globe. Why? Because those who have faith will be blessed. And we're in a unique position compared to Mary. I think Mary responded in faith by believing and looking forward to what God would do. Okay, he said he's going to come. Here he is. He's coming now. But we get to look backwards. We get to look backwards and see that Mary's faith was rewarded. Jesus did everything that he said he would do. Everything that Gabriel told here, Jesus accomplished. And Mary got to see it with her own eyes. But like Mary, we also look forward. We look forward to the advent of our king when he comes again. To the return of the king when he will do all that he promised and his kingdom will finally be set up physically before us. And it will never end. And all of the nations and the governments will be conquered and justice will reign finally over every corner of the globe. And the moment to respond with faith is right now. Because the blessings of the kingdom and the blessing of eternal life that comes only through Jesus not just through his birth, but through his death and sacrifice on the cross. It is available to all of us. And the blessings that come with it is available to everyone, but it only comes through faith. The rewards of the kingdom, they're not just available to young virgins who have incredible faith. They're also available to old sinners. They're available to prostitutes and tax collectors. They're available to the poor and the overlooked. For God who so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This morning we've been reminded Jesus is the promised Davidic king. We should respond to that king with faith and that those who respond with faith will be blessed with eternal life and peace forever. So have faith this Advent season because the king has come and he will come again. Let's bow our heads in prayer and invite the worship team to come up one more time. Lord, I ask that you would strengthen our faith.
Lord, I ask that if there are those here who do not know you, um, Lord, that you will call them to yourself, that you will reveal yourself to them, that you will show them yourself in miracles. Lord, that they would get to see the beauty and the wonder of you and your, king, your kingship and your kingdom. And Lord, for those of us who, who do know you, Lord, would you encourage our faith? There can be so many things that try to steal it from us. Our own distractions and frustrations during the week, our sufferings. Lord, I ask that you would help us. Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Will we end this Christmas season with more faith than when we began it? We would look forward to your coming again. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Won't you stand with us as we sing to our Savior one more time? Amen. Here, benediction from the end of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, and through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.